to our beautiful deep community, I want to assure you the deeper is going nowhere and the same incredible content will be released every week, but now through Arise. It is going to be less trauma heavy and more inspirational, uplifting, but it will still challenge and push you to grow. For all your deeper episodes, they are still available every fortnight. You can still get your deep hit with the deeper subscription. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Pain was registered on every single level. It was like every cell in my body wanted to be anywhere else, the opposite side of the world. I wanted everything to just be raised to the ground around me. Um, I wanted to set myself on fucking fire. Welcome to The Deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. I pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Conversion therapy sounds like something from the history books or a horror movie, but this was not the case for Claire. Assigned male at birth, Claire's family felt the need to fix her. So they sent her to conversion therapy with an unqualified religious fanatic. It was torture. You can still hear the pain in her voice. This is Claire's story. Content warning. If you're suffering or triggered by the themes of this podcast, help services are listed in the show notes. Claire, welcome to The Deep. Thank you very much for having me. Do you mind if we start a little bit back when you were a child and the first time that things felt perhaps different for you? I was simultaneously not measuring up to the expectations of the gender that I was assigned as at birth and um, also very uncomfortable with those expectations being lumped on me. And so I knew that something was wrong. How old are we? At this point, we're probably four or five. I mean, at that point, you know what a mom is, what a dad is. Yes. Especially where I come from in the United States. It's the Bible Belt. It's very rural. People have very strong opinions about... um, Roles and genders and... Yeah, of course. But specifically children and and early adolescent, uh, you know, individuals who... um, you know, they're, they're human beings, they're children, but they have self-conceptions that are related to a system that they're in and trying to understand. And they may not have the language to describe it as exactly as I'm able to at the ripe old age of 27, but those, you know, those conceptions still exist. Um, and I had already conceived of myself at that age, you know, as at least 
uncomfortable and was aware that something was amiss. So at, cause, cause I have a four-year-old boy and he is very gendered, which is strange because I'm very open here with whatever is fluid for him. Right. But he's in that, that's a girl thing. That's a boy thing. So I completely get that by four, you would feel a sense of, I am uncomfortable in my body or how the world sees me is not how I see myself with your community, especially a religious community. I can't imagine how strange that would have been as a small child trying to even navigate that. How do you even process that? There's no one in my family that isn't an evangelical Christian. And we belong to a certain subset of Baptists called General Baptists. They're an Arminian split within Baptist denominations. And my mother ranks fairly high within the, I suppose, the C-suite executives of the administrative wing of the denomination. My father was deaconized and a small business owner in, um, you know, the the town that I lived in and the, and the home church that we had respectively. And so growing up, you're told a lot of things. I didn't know the world was any different for mm-hmm. starters. I didn't know that, I mean, really that other people were living um, different lives as an adult. I can look back and say, I am fairly certain and am becoming more comfortable with the idea that I grew up in a cult. Yeah. In what I can only now look back and describe as a cult. I mean, this is a huge part of it. You know, minors have no rights. No. And that's what I'm thinking as a child. uh, Were you assigned a male at birth? Yes. And growing up and then feeling uncomfortable in the body that you were assigned. and, And I guess, you know, you're young, but as you develop, this feeling would be stronger. And I guess the sense of being able to express that would be really hard, especially in your community or your family. Do you remember the first moment that you came to your parents and opened dialogue or said something that was so against what they believe to be true in the world? Well, Zoe, let's go into it. So my family firmly believed that marriage was between a man and a woman. Not only that, but that marriage was divinely ordained and children Mm -hmm. were secondary, if not functionally irrelevant, because you could have as many of them as you wanted within the confines of a marriage. And I know that might sound silly, but I remember being in Sunday school where my dad was a Sunday school teacher. And he said, if, if vandals and or um, religious extremists from another religion held my entire family at gunpoint and said, you know, renounce God or I'm going to kill your entire family. What he would say, and he told this to an entire class of people was don't kill my wife. And his reasoning was they can make more children. Holy moly. You're replaceable. So if you are going to exist, you exist in the way that I tell you and you, that is it. I am, I am replaceable, right? My relevance directly affects them. I mean, I'm an extension of them. They can produce as many extensions of themselves as they are capable of doing. You know, if they're within their reproductive window, they can continue to reproduce and create extensions of themselves. But I am one of a set of variables 
and I better conform to what they want to allow for the extension of themselves to be. Okay. So this is, this is helpful now for my question, because I understand where you sit in the family dynamic. So robust conversation is welcome, but you also know that you're replaceable in a way, which is such an awful thing as a child. When do they start to sense, okay, something's different here. And how do they deal? They always knew that I was different. It's so funny how in denial people can be. Mm -hmm. I think on the one hand, it was easier for them to make denials of it if they turned a blind eye and just weren't, you know, having those conversations or looking, weren't acknowledging that this was the way things were. I think on the one hand, I am bisexual. And so, you know, my sexuality is expressed in, in one way and my gender identity is expressed in another. And I've always sounded more androgynous. I've always, you know, looked relatively androgynous and, um, you know, I don't think those things precluded them from having expectations of me. Again, it's like those codes of conduct thing, they were enforced, but they weren't necessarily talked about. It's like you knew what to say and what not to say based on, you know, what you hear in church, um, what you hear them say about other people. Um, and you, you pick that up quickly. I don't think there was ever like a sit down moment with them where I told them about who I was, or maybe they recognized what I was. They had sort of turned the, away from me and um, that part of myself, I suppose. I, they were the last people to know. Funnily enough, but like I, I, they were the last people to know. Everyone else in my life knew. And the, here's the deal, the fallout from it, I think, was worse because of that fact. Was it the denial that allowed them to be lost? Maybe in a way. I mean, I would also deny that to them. It wasn't a conversation that I wanted to have with them because there yeah, was no way in which I would be the right answer. Right. Yeah, got it. Got Someone it. else would be the right answer and that right answer wasn't me. Had you been honest about it to somebody else? Oh, everyone else. Everyone else. Sure. And, and, and in the community, you're still living within this community. So how was that received? So word would eventually get back to them. I had a tight knit group of friends um, and my peer group, people who were my age. Um, you know, I wasn't really bullied or judged to any great degree who wound up coming down most harshly on me were school counselors, administrators, principals, teachers, um, people my parents were socially connected with. And so they acted as eventually informants, but or initially as this sort of first stumbling block for me. They would threaten to tell my parents something or, um, you know, I would get into screaming matches with them at school. It was this constant weird tug of war where I think from an early age, I got the hang of a sense of a power dynamic where like it's a tightrope walk, but it's not just one tightrope. It's many tightropes layered at odd angles across one another. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm 
building support for myself among my friends. I have some adults that I can talk to, some adults that if they know anything, they're just gonna go back and tell my parents. I had a, a principal at a school lie to my father and tell him that there was some, it, it, the way my father described it was that there was a roving gang of, of gay teenagers who were out for fresh meat or something that had recruited me. And this convinced them to pull me out of public schooling and put me in a private Baptist academy. And also what I'm hearing is this uh, la- responsibility isn't the right word, but this lack of acknowledgement or um, owning that this could just be you, you know, they had to blame and make it something else because our child wouldn't, couldn't. Right. Oh, yeah. So he, he, he has been taken by a gay gang, which I've never actually heard of. Isn't that insane? A creative way to look at it. So I can imagine they take you out of school. They put you in a new school. They are now deeply terrified that this could be true. What they were really sorry for and what I made them sorry for through my own actions was their shame. I've learned not to pick it up over the years, but I picked it up for a long, long time. But their shame is what drove them to be as extreme in their reaction as possible because everyone else knew they were the last for the light bulb to go off in their heads. And I think the jeopardization of their position came to the fore where they were morally compromised because they lived in such a morally strict society. They you know, were a part of this cult and they had to conform themselves. They had to force me to conform as an extension of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so they had to demonstrate to their community that they were doing everything in their power to get this under control. And oh, did they? What was their way to deal? What did you have to do? Well, initially you have, um, oh God. Initially you have them, you know, getting upset, physical, flashing out, forcing Mm -hmm. me to read, you know, until late into the night, Bible verses about how I'm a poison, not just to, you know, my community and myself and my own spirit, but to their marriage even. I mean, it just, all of the blame for all of the evils that had befallen them to small and large degree was lumped on me. And so the sole responsibility of fixing it was mine. Beyond that, they immediately took me to our pastor. Mm -hmm. This is so crazy. I don't mean to backtrack. Around this time, I had come out about have, having been molested as a child by an, a, an older cousin. And that happened around, say, right before Thanksgiving. Well, we had mm-hmm. separate Thanksgivings. The family was fractured. My grandmother wound up blaming me for wow. fracturing the family. By Christmas, they had found out. And so Christmas was rejoined. And my parents went up, hugged, and forgave (gasps) my cousin. They mended a familial bridge that I had broken. And so the blame for all of it was lumped squarely on my shoulders because of who and what I was. I'm so sorry. That's so fucked up. The 
last and worst thing, and this was something that the, the church pastor, the pastor of our home church had suggested, was that we seek conversion therapy. And so that was the, not even the last thing, but that was the big one because it taught my parents the sort of tools of the trade to continue a legitimized form of child abuse well into my teens. So when was this suggested? How old are you at this point? 14. You're 14. And this is the same kind of timeline that the truth of the molestation came out? Yeah. And when, what age did that occur? When I was very young, probably five, six, seven, maybe. It happened for years. Oh, okay. In this 14-year-old span, are they also thinking maybe you're behaving like this because of that experience? No. I think they're thinking that something is wrong with me that compelled me to... I was the problem. There wasn't any outside problem. I was the problem. That something was wrong with me, and because of me, I was molested. (gasps) Oh, my God. It's your fault. It's my fault. It was my fault. Um, It wasn't my cousin's fault. It was because of the way that I was that I was molested. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. My cousin was just, you know, trapped by me. Oh, wow. This is so wild. Okay. So now we're at 14. I can't even imagine how horrific that was for you. Yeah. So heartbreaking. I'm really sorry. Oh, um, I don't think I've ever told anyone that before. Besides my psychologist, I've given other interviews about conversion therapy, but that piece has always been sort of missing. I'm so sorry. I'm just, oh, I feel quite rageful. I was too for a long <sighs> time. And I feel really sad. My psychologist thinks I am incredibly well adjusted given the given. <sighs> and I'm still pretty messed up. I just feel, you know, I think we really need to honor this part of the story because to be blamed by a family unit and to be, it's like a, it's like a witch hunt you know, and for a small child that is still trying to navigate and make sense of things coming through a trauma and then blamed, blamed, and then the perpetrator forgiven and loved in your face. I mean, wow. I don't know much about religion, but I'm sure that that is not one of the amendments, you know, like, that you behave that way. You're their baby. And I know, and I think it's really helpful that you expressed the way they see children because that does help shift the perception. You're coming at the idea of a baby totally different than they're coming at the You're right. But I'm just like, at the end of the day, you're cells are their cells your blood is their blood and I just maternally just from an animal point of view I am like seeing my cub being attacked and then loving the attacker something uh intrinsically in myself in my body in my gut cannot 
oh, it's just really hard. And I, 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 and I think this is the conditioning, right, that I don't have. But um, I have to speak from the place of all of the listeners listening and go and be outraged for you, you know, because it's a huge injustice and it is deeply unfair and, and traumatizing and fucked up, you know. So I think that takes us to the next stage where, we're leading, please continue with the conversion therapy option because, you know, things are going to get more fucked up. So I think it's good to have the levels of fucked upness, you know? Of course. Zoe, Zoe, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they go up and hug my abuser, you know, someone who hurt me? They were on the same side. They were going to hurt me even worse. Mm. They were on the same team. Team hurt me. Um. So that winter, I started going to conversion therapy. I saw he looked like a Ghostbusters ghost, just slimy, pale, pudgy. He was hopelessly effeminate, um, just really? to the degree. Yes, he was a wow. quote unquote ex gay who had cheated on his long term wife for decades, you know, stepped out on his own marriage, saw the light. And I mean, this guy was slimy, just slimy. Um, From stem to stern, this person is vile. Mm. In his own, in his own personal life, right? Like this person was open about the fact that, you know, they would rail and get railed a bunch of dudes and then go home to their wife. And that when their wife got pregnant for the second time, he just decided, you know what, I'm going to go be gay and left her when she was pregnant to fend for herself, of course, to go experience his life, but then was called back. And he was a very toxic individual because conversion therapy doesn't work. <laughs> and, and Don't uh, get still- to, don't don't ruin the ending. Oh, I mean, sorry, gosh, damn. we're all no. thinking here um, that you got converted. <laughs> no, it... Uh, it is bunk um, pseudo psychology. Uh, it's well, look, let's just preface this. It's um, a legitimized form of torture in the United States. It's perfectly legal. So this guy who is ex-gay, um, done these horrible things to his family unit, um, starts his own business and now is reputable in the community to send your children to. And you pay him to do this. Yes, yeah, pay him. And it's clandestine. So it's not like it's it's not necessarily that there are public inroads. Um, yes, you know, this person advertises maybe male sexual health help, you know, really gay um, aversion therapy or, um, you know, they had a separate wing for women where an ex-lesbian was, you know, in charge of that section of it um and and those were things that you know maybe have had a website or something but you were almost trafficked you're almost trafficked i would say i was like let me just go ahead and say i was trafficked i was trafficked up to these what does that mean multiple times a week as a as during the week school week i lived four hours south of st louis so that's four hours and after school it's maybe what 434, something like that. I get into a car. I'm sobbing because I am being abducted against my will to go to a place I do not want to go. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the while I'm being told how awful I am, um, all of these things, but whatever parent is taking me up there, if not both parents, um, you know, they're trying to do damage control in the car and, and figure me out. I'm still expected to do all of my schoolwork on the way up there to appear as normal as humanly possible whenever I get back into the day-to-day world. And by the time we get there, it's, you know, 8, 8.30. I have to go to this sort of church, but it's the back side of it. And so I never, I could never figure out exactly what church it was. What, however, we got there, it was unmarked. And they lead you into this, down this long flight of stairs into a basement. And the basement is very dark. There's a hallway and then a room and that's office. And so sometimes I would be in office, you know, until one or two in the morning. And then I have to drive all the way back, get an hour of sleep, wake up and go to school. And what are you doing? It ranges from talk therapy where he's telling you that, you know, it's not just your fault. It's also to some degree, your parents' fault, guilting them into it. Each conversion therapist practices a method, their own method. Um, you never really see the same method twice. They all come to their own pseudoscientific theory. And this was called the cup method, that there inside of all of us exists a cup and that there are divinely ordained things that go in our respective cup and that my cup was just filled with the wrong things. And that could have been to a combination of factors, um, you know, my friends had taken the place of God in my life, that I had not done enough manual labor. That's very important for later that, um, you know, I was, I was, I had not made enough male friends, um, that I had too many female friends that, um, you know, my, my friends were not of God that I had currently. And they allowed for this sort of behavior to be supported that, um, you know, my mother was too, too nurturing and that my father, um, you know, wasn't strict enough um, or maybe wasn't present enough in my life to form a good um, role model relationship. Um, this was the sort of basis for his working theory. It also involved, um, you know, I would say psychological torture where you're being shown very graphic images of the dangers of the, um, you know, quote unquote, gay lifestyle. Um, but you know, you're being verbally abused, called a faggot. Um, you know, my parents are physically abusing me at home. I never experienced physical abuse. Conversion therapy can get way worse than what I experienced in session. But, you know, I had to look at a lot of really gross stuff when my parents were out of the room. Pornographic things or violence? Yeah, diseases, all sorts of gross stuff. To scare you? Yeah. So he never physically touched you. Like I wasn't, he didn't touch me in an, like an erotic way or anything. He didn't. Yes. Um, yes. It wasn't like that. It wasn't physically painful. I can't even say that just because of the way in which all of this was happening. It was so brutal. It was so fucking brutal. I mean, I can't even sit here and say that I pain was registered on every single level. It was yes. like every cell in my body wanted to, be anywhere else, the opposite side of the world. I wanted everything to just be raised to the ground around me. Um, I wanted to set myself on fucking fire. Um, they would 
force me into certain postures. I wasn't allowed to cry, um, you know, severely reprimanded, yelled at. It was severe emotional abuse. Yes, but also physical to some degree. My head was shaved. My, you know, I wasn't allowed to express. That was a huge part of it. I had to curtail all forms of self-expression. It doesn't mean you stop feeling, but the physicality of the self is being truncated. Squashed, yes. Um, From their perspective, removed, but, you know, as someone who's gone through this, suppressed physically, emotionally, mentally, um, you know, even spiritually, it just is breaking. Yes. How long were you there? Months, multiple times a week. And how do they check your, your, your gayness or your, whatever they're trying to get out of you? How do they, how do they know when you're done? Like, how do they know I'm, I'm, um, the way I'm supposed to be, right? Because I've never identified as gay, right? Like I have never self-identified as gay. Yes. How but do they've... they know that I am the way that I'm not, that I'm not a faggot, yes. right? Which is, they wouldn't say gay, they would say faggot. So okay, yes. how would they know that I'm not a faggot? Um, When's it over? It's never when... over. It's never over. From that moment on, it was never over. So when, are you telling me that this, it just evolved? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Exponentially so. My parents would force me to do manual labor at home, you know, chop wood, haul wood, stack wood, um, you know, pick up limbs, mow the yard, backbreaking stuff. My father owned a couple of businesses. And so I was just free physical labor, a slave on one side of it. Um, I remember my dad I had two pairs of pants and a t-shirt, two pairs of jeans that did not fit and one white t-shirt that I was allowed to keep. And all the rest of my clothing was rounded up and burned. I wasn't allowed to grow my hair. I didn't, I, I wasn't allowed to express at all. And that just continued. I mean, it's like getting knocked up, you know, into a wall, into a tree, whatever's close. My dad wanted to kill me. Wow. Okay. So this is just a life of child abuse now, whether it's outsourced or it's in the home. Did you just go, I will pretend that I'm this macho dude and it will stop? I don't think that there's a way for me to pretend that. There's just no way. The, the way in which I was able to survive is multifold. I remember I had a breaking point sometime that spring, the next one, where I was laying, I locked myself in a bathroom, I was crying on the floor, and I con- convinced myself that I was not going to cry ever again, that I was not going to give them the satisfaction of letting them know at 14, that they're hurting me because it didn't seem letting them know, my parents know that this hurts. It made no difference. And so if anything, I think that that signaled to them that they were doing the the good, the right thing that I needed to be hurt. And so that was one part of a survival strategy was to deaden myself emotionally, intentionally um, deaden myself, become a rock. 
a stone person. On the other hand, I immediately made a pact with myself that I was going to get out of the situation as quickly as humanly possible by whatever means necessary. And so how do you do that? I told them at a certain point that, you know, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, we don't have to talk about it anymore. I'll handle it. You know, I don't, I don't have to be this way or whatever. That doesn't mean that the abuse stopped. That doesn't mean that like the rigid conformity stopped. Um, but it was a way for me to grease the gears toward pivoting elsewhere. At least gave me some of a cushion where like, you know, I could, I could verbally back away and not have to defend a position to them, mm-hmm. which was helpful psychologically. Beyond that, I left home early. What age? 17, 16, 17. I wound up going to cosmetology school. I graduated high school a year early. I studied and worked really hard, which this is the pact that I made with myself. I graduated high school a year early, got myself into cosmetology school. And then I was living with a much older boyfriend that I had, had gotten and working eight hour days in cosmetology school on my feet and eight hour nights at a McDonald's that was in a Walmart, how dystopian. After cosmetology school, I worked in a factory, I worked third shift. And at this time, did you feel like you could live in your truth as a woman? Yes and no. So my parents still held power. I was able to be as much myself as I could. It's not like they're going to walk into the factory that I work. You know, I could wear what I wanted when I went in there, but it's a factory, right? And I'm walking 11 miles a night as a material handler, stocking lines for HVAC units just in order to squirrel away enough money in order to get the hell out of there. Because you're still in the same town. So you're like yeah. starting your plan. So there's still a sense of they are around, but they have lost, I guess, some control because the, the therapy had stopped at that point. I hate calling it that because therapy is a beautiful thing. The conversion torture had stopped at this point when you were working. Well, except for the fact that you are now ostracized. Where right. you're, the love and affection, if given at all, is now you know, a, a, a chip. You're not invited to holidays anymore. People directly tell you. I mean, my grandmother called me, both grandmothers eventually, but initially one of my grandmothers called me and said, we don't want you around any of the other children. We don't um, want to have to explain you to people. Um, you know, we don't want you to be here anymore. Because this is interesting. Can I just ask you on that point? Sure. Because you had been tortured and abused by your family unit amongst all of the bullshit with the cousin right right was there some part of you that wanted to still be around these people like for them to tell you I know I I get like the essence of belonging but was there like was there part of it that was mutual where you were like or was it just still more pain so it's both. I mean, I think you can, I, I can, and certainly have had to integrate both. And maybe I wouldn't even describe it as that. So I often fantasized and still do to some degree, getting some form of revenge, putting it all out there. Well, I'll just tell you as, as my first little act of revenge, the night that my parents found out, my dad and mom 
told me that my dad dealt with similar feelings and that he broke down on their wedding night. Wow. Yeah. That he dealt with similar feelings, but that his love for my mother and his love for God uh, changed him. And that my dad went through periods when he was a teenager where he would have preferred to wake up as a woman because he was sensitive and different. What? Yeah. There's a part of you, I'm sure, as a human, even though they don't have these instincts, but where you'd be like, you are me. You get me. I know oh, yeah. a part of you knows oh, that. And you have stifled it. Family. I love, I, I had up until that point, a pretty idyllic childhood to some degree. I mean, we were upper middle class, wanted for little, you know, I grew up in a house where I had a nanny. Um, my, both my parents worked and that is a grip that they held over me until I was 17. Right. But then after 17, t- cut me off totally. I was completely on my own. And I was bitter, very embittered, still am to some degree. Hang on. You chose to leave or they cut you off at 17 or both. You were like, I oh, it was very much both. We're like, I needed okay. to get the, out of there. Me leaving and not being under their control anymore set the conditions for them to exile me totally. So they stopped talking about me to other people. Um, my dad's funeral was five years ago and I wasn't allowed to see him because my family didn't want me around while he was ailing. He suffered with stage four colorectal cancer for a little under a year. I was not allowed to see him before he died. I was permitted to attend the funeral by a hair. I showed up as myself. People were, you know, greeting and, and giving their condolences to my sister and my mother. And I was standing next to my father's open casket funeral where his emaciated corpse is there. It's the first time I've seen him in years. And um, people are asking me in the line, who are you? Why are you up here? And I said, oh, you know, I'm my father's first child. Well, I didn't know he had two children. They thought my sister, from the point that I was cut off and exiled and made a pariah, they completely stopped talking about me. I was, I was hush hush. It was a secret. It wasn't anything that you talked about. And this is the world that I'm coming from where like, you just don't talk about something. And I was a thing you didn't talk about. What about your sister? I love my sister. I mean, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, like I'm just. Thinking. I love so many of my family. I still love them. I mean, I st- I still love them. I still. Just to answer your question, I am very hurt, and I always will be. But there's still my family, and on some level, I will always want to be a part of that because you're right. They're where I come from, and I've got them in me, and I'm never not going to have them in me. I get it. I get it so deeply. I was betrayed um, by my family and there is like this small child that longs for and loves forever. And it's like the wrongdoing. It doesn't matter, you know, because (sighs) it obviously matters, but to the soul, to this part of you, it's kind of like that unconditional dog love you know like a dog you can do whatever to it and you come home and it just is there there's I I really understand that part oh babe I love them out of spite oh it is spiteful (laughs) I give them every ounce of love that they never showed me unconditionally like you're supposed to I love them the most Christian thing you could do (laughs) they deserve it let me tell you they deserve to have to live with my love 
um, and my hate, but my unconditional love, my hate for what they did to me, but my love for them as human beings. Can I ask you about your sister? Did you ever get uh, and other family members that you were really fond of and that were fond of you? And I'm sure regardless of what the church said, did you uh, or could you have contact with some of them and no. zero? Yeah. You know, eventually you just stop getting calls, texts. No one checks in. Um, you don't get invited to things anymore. Graduations. You're seen as a liability. So why would they keep you around? My sister was, you know, five years younger than me. And so, you know, she was going through high school after I had left. Mm. She still had to live under, you know, the regime of totalitarianism that we grew up under and religious extremism. It was something that she ultimately, and like I begged her one night sobbing after I had been viciously dehumanized by my parents. I just told her, don't be like me. Don't be like me. Be anything else. Don't be like this. Don't be different. Just toe the line. And she did. Um, I think in part seeing what happened to me to survive. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's a, it was her survival strategy. And I think it fits a lot better with her. Um, you know, she was able to make it work and conform enough to be the golden child. And I'm very happy for her. Really. No one deserves to go through what I went through. And nothing with your mom. My mom, um, like I just went to my sister's wedding. It was the first family event that wasn't a funeral that I've been allowed back to and I'm 27 and my sister is the one who invited me wow I was not a bridesmaid (laughs) I um was not asking too much asking too much (laughs) (laughs) of course of course um that's okay I didn't I didn't need it um it would have drawn too much attention it would have been something that they'd had to explain um were you there as a guest or there as family uh, there is a guest, but I was allowed to sit on the far side of the reserve section of the pew. So the, the, the reserved pew. Um, so I was, I was allowed to be a part of family that was very healing in a lot of ways to be accepted, you know, by my sister's new familial unit. Mm. Um, that her and my now brother-in-law recognized me. So will that continue? With her, yes. My mother has allowed me to come to her home now. Although our relationship is tense, it has Mm. gotten a lot better, especially after my father died. Mm. Um, She relaxed a lot. Um, I have to give her a lot of credit there. Um, Not to say that we just don't talk about it. Again, it's one of those things we just don't talk about. I'm not going to change and she's not going to budge. So, you know, what's the point? We're just going to beat our heads against the same brick wall. We've been beating them against for 13 years. It must just be the strangest thing to be born into the worst option for a family unit. You were put into the worst case scenario. Yeah. It's funny. I've never even thought that. I've always thought, you know, there's probably a worse. You know, there are people out there who have it so much worse. So what am I complaining about? It's all relative. But really, when you think about it, 
the combination of you going there is just the worst placement, you know. It's ironic, isn't it? I mean, it is. It really is. Despite all their best efforts. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, so I'm wondering then, like, it doesn't work, it didn't work, so who, who is cured Who's cured by this? Who's walking around town going, oh my gosh, the cup method worked, you know, like. (laughs) So here's the thing. I don't think it's about that. I think it's about proof and, and it doesn't need to be real. It just needs to be enough. It doesn't have to stick. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, proof that we can make you less gay. No, 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 no. Proof that we can make you not a faggot. No, 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 no. Proof that you're not uh, a training anymore. No, 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 no. It's proof that we are doing our very best to make this stop. That doesn't mean you make it stop. I was never going to win. It's not about you. It's not about success. It was never about my immortal soul. It was never about curing me. It was about being able to demonstrate to the people that they relied on for their socioeconomic status, for their place in the society that they had made their home. It was about being able to go back to them and show them, look, you know, it's out of our hands. We are not to blame here. We're doing everything we can as parents to make sure that this child acts right. It's this child who's the problem. And so they're absolved. Wow. Okay. So this still exists, right? There'd be very undercover conversion therapies. Yeah, there's someone that still plenty of children. It's mostly, so statistically speaking, in the United States, it's mostly children, minors, who are forced to go to people who are not licensed practitioners of any therapy. You know, they're not psychologists. They have no degrees. They're religious practitioners of these methods as individualized as they are. That's the statistical majority. I'm a part of the statistical majority of conversion Mm -hmm. therapy survivors. Are you in contact with any other survivors? Oh yeah. I was, I sat on the board for um, a couple of years of an organization called conversion therapy dropout network. It's headquartered out of Los Angeles. I love the word dropout, like as if you had a choice, you know? (laughs) Well, some people do, Um, you know, There are also other conversion therapy survivors who come from a completely different background and sought it out as adults. Oh, wow. Yeah, they they chose it, which can be very tough for me to reconcile as someone who, you know, was forced. How are you now? Oh, boy. Um, I have a husband. I just bought a house last year. Congratulations. Thank you. I work as a mediator at a nonprofit and do for promotion. I still deal with feelings of on a certain level that I'm bereft of love. 
no matter how much love I can ever get, and I have really been shown it, I mean really been shown it, in some ways that just in the moment bring me a peace like I've never felt before in my entire life where I really know I'm being shown love mm. and what it's supposed to be, that this person just loves me. Mm. Yeah. Like my husband, like plenty of other people in my life. Um, I still struggle with, you know, feeling like I'm unlovable, that there is something intrinsically wrong about me, that I am an abomination, as I was so often told, that something about me must be fixed. Mm. And so I curate neurotically all sorts of things about myself. I am very cruel to myself. I'm, I'm harsh on myself. I'm a perfectionist to the nth degree. I think in some ways you're actually answering my last question. <laughs> May I ask it anyway? Sure, go ahead. Everybody on the deep gets this question. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you when no one's watching? I think I'm sad, Zoe. Nobody knows. I think I'm sad. I'm introverted. I live a much more solitary life than I thought I would. I push myself into extroversion publicly, but at a cost. And I think it's because I feel like I have to be some standard bearer for my community mm. to put on a brave face and make sure that either no one else has to go through what I did or that I'm a positive force exposing people to transness in a healthy way so that they become accustomed to it. It's not something mm. strange, foreign or abominable. But ultimately, I live in a world where I don't think anyone truly understands the pressure that that puts on me. And there are a bunch of expectations of me to be paraded around, you know, to have events where I talk about this, to, to, to expose myself in this sort of masturbatory way where it's just trauma porn. Yes. And that can be very exhausting on the one hand, but depressing. I have dealt with and still deal with suicide as an option um, still, which I don't talk about. I say that for myself. There's enough evil in the world and everyone deals with so much, you know, why lump? The, the lived effects that I still, the ripples of it, that I still deal with, it's reverberations across time onto someone else. I can talk about it. I can analyze it. I can talk about the facts of the matter. Um, but ultimately, the responsibility of healing is mine. And so I'm someone who's healing slowly, very slowly. Can I ask you something? Has it felt like that today for you, trauma porn? I think in a way... Every time I talk about it publicly can be where all of these have the ability to be turned into that. This is luckily private enough. I mean, not to say that, you know, this isn't going to be heard by people. It feels more like confessional. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it feels, yeah. this feels more like, um, I can say this, it'll be put out into the ether. People will hear it. Sure. Hopefully they will not reach out to me or message me, 
hopefully mm-hmm. they will, um, you know, not try to come up to me after this. Like when I've spoken publicly about it, people want to come up to you and talk to you about it. People want to get to know you after the fact. And it's like, this is not what I want people to know me for. I may want people to know about this, but I don't want people to know me for this. And I thank you. I thank you for saying that because um, and putting a boundary in with our listeners because a lot of people do do that and reach out often um, to guests. And, and that's everyone has a different choice about that. But I think it's important for people to hear that that is not welcome and um that's okay you can follow along with my life but just don't talk about it (laughs) yeah I think distance is healthy I really appreciate you your truth your vulnerability I can tell the work you've done and I can tell how intelligent you are just by the way in which you've been able to verse this today really insightful and very um, generous of you. So thank you for being with us on The Deep today. Thank you for having me, Zoe. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's The Deep. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everybody. It is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting. It's quirky. It's curious. It's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you'll hear some of these episodes and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.